Welcome to the 294th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Carly Purdom, Assistant Research Professor at the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center of Texas A&M University. We're gonna talk about COVID-19, the United States prison system, and incarcerated people. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special broadcast today being held at 6.45 p.m. Eastern time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 21st, 2021, there are 3,867,641 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. As of April 16th of this year, 2,990 incarcerated persons in the United States have died of COVID. That's according to the Equal Justice Initiative. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that reading now. Headline is 55 prisoners who contracted COVID died. Activists say it was preventable. This was written by Caitlin Newberg and appeared in the Las Vegas Review Journal April 9th, 2021. When writing his last letter to his mother, Johnny Nunley was terrified that he would die from the virus devastating his body. He said, right now, I'm not feeling normal. I have no energy, my eyes hurt, I can't taste my food, and everything smells the same. It stinks, said Donna Davis, reading from the letter. Nunley's fears came true. The 56-year-old died of COVID-19 on December 3rd, 2020 at High Desert State Prison when his family said he was close to being released on parole for burglary charges. Clark County coroner records identified Nunley as one of 55 Nevada prisoners who died after testing positive for COVID-19. According to March 29th data, this is data from this year, provided by the Department of Corrections, Nevada. Davis said that before her son died, he complained of feeling sicker and sicker to her over the phone. She said he should have received better, better medical treatment. It's like they took the position that he was just an inmate. What difference does it make, Davis said. The Department of Corrections declined to identify the 55 prisoners who records show died after testing positive for the virus, but using records from Nevada coroner's offices and sheriff's departments, the review journal identified 39 of them, all were men. Those not identified were either considered pending cases because an agency had not yet independently confirmed and cataloged their cause and manner of death, or their cases fell under the jurisdiction of the Pershing County Sheriff's Office, which did not respond to requests or comment. Since the start of the pandemic, among all state prisons, the Northern Nevada Correctional Center in Carson City had seen the most prisoners die after testing positive. 
30 have died, according to Department of Corrections data. Nevada Sentencing Commission has twice declined to recommend that Governor Steve Sisolak depopulate the prison population to minimize spread. In May of 2020, the Nevada Supreme Court also denied a petition to release vulnerable and elderly prisoners because of the virus. State data as of the time of publication in this article appeared April 16th of this year, 2021. State data as of the time of publication showed 4,500 coronavirus cases among state prisoners since the start of the pandemic and 980 cases among prison employees. The youngest prisoner confirmed to have died of COVID-19 was Jeremy Heathman, 37, who records show was serving two to six years for burglary. He died at High Desert State Prison on November 27th amid a reported surge in state prison cases. At the time, activists implored the state to intervene, but no action came. Sarah Hawkins, a Clark County public defender and president of Nevada Attorneys for Criminal Justice, said the prison system has stonewalled those seeking answers throughout the pandemic. She said activists suspect that more than 55 prisoners have died of the virus. What we've been hearing does not match what we're hearing from folks who are actually in custody, Hawkins said. What we've been hearing just repeating that, what we've been hearing from NDOC, the Nevada Department of Corrections, does not match what we're hearing from folks who are actually in custody, Hawkins said. The prison system has confirmed that 46 of the 55 prisoners reflected in its data died from COVID-19. State law requires an autopsy to confirm the cause of all prisoner deaths. COVID-19 data from the Department of Health and Human Services shows 53 prisoner deaths a spokeswoman said the agency was reviewing the prison system's other two reported cases. Hawkins said deaths related to the virus were preventable and that prison outbreaks are a result of the Nevada Department of Corrections' failure to act. We are incredibly disheartened and we feel really helpless because we can't get the information we need to challenge that, she said. In an emailed statement, the Department of Corrections cited the confidentiality of medical information when refusing to identify which inmates died of the virus. Three department employees have died of COVID-19, according to state data. As the number of cases rose, Jamie Fitch could tell that her father was nervous. Who knew once it got to where it started taking off that people would start dying, Fitch said. Those were his words to me. Following a stroke several years ago, Robert Bowman was housed in a medical unit at the Northern Nevada Correctional Center with other men at high risk of contracting COVID-19. They talked through letters and weekly phone calls, a relationship that took nearly 10 years to repair. Alcoholism has haunted Bowman throughout his life, Fitch said. That's why he was again in prison on a DUI charge. His sentence was set to expire in 2023, but he was due to be released on parole as early as 2021. Then came Christmas time. The warden couldn't even tell me how long he was sick for or how long he was in the hospital. Fitch hadn't heard from her father in weeks. The Christmas card he faithfully sent each year never came. Finally, she got a call from the prison and she immediately knew something was wrong. The warden couldn't even tell me how long he was sick. Bowman died December 27th at Carson Tahoe Regional Medical Center, according to the Carson City Sheriff's Office. He was 70. Fitch said her father and prisoners like him were sandwiched together, never given a fighting chance against COVID-19. She teared up, thinking about how close she was to seeing him again. He was supposed to meet his great-granddaughter, who is now four, upon release. He didn't want her first memory of him to be from behind bars. 
she will now have to meet him through a letter he left her and the cowboy mementos from his rodeo days that Fitch holds on to. That was her only living great-grandparent, she said, and now that chance is gone and he only had a few months left. Like Bowman, Nunley was close to being released on parole. He had been searching for a place to stay in Clark County when he died of the virus. The same day, his mother received his last letter, his sister Lisa Nunley-Macon said. Nunley-Macon said she partly blames a lack of care from the prison system for her brother's death. The former football player who was serving a 6-15 to 15 year sentence for stealing items from a Las Vegas grocery store was a clean freak, she said, and likely would have taken stringent precautions given the freedom to do so. I don't believe he would have died if he wasn't in prison, she said. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Carly Purdom. Carly Purdom is an assistant research professor at the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center of Texas A&M University. Her work focuses on the impact that hazards and disasters have on prisons and incarcerated populations. She currently leads the Converge COVID-19 Working Group, studying the impact of COVID-19 in prison. Her research partners include the organizations, the Texas Prison Air Conditioning Advocates, TPAA, and the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons, which she works with to study the impact that extreme temperatures in COVID-19 have had on prisons and incarcerated persons in Texas. Carly Purdom, thanks for your time and welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you. I'd like to start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation, vaccination situation looks like there today. I'm calling from College Station, Texas, and uh, the situation is definitely better than it was now that the uh, vaccine has become available. Uh, but you know, more than 250 people have died just in our county. Uh, more than 52,000 people have died in the state of Texas. Uh, it's um, about only about 40% of the state is fully vaccinated at this point, but it's definitely difficult because restrictions are no longer in place and, and people are um, definitely, uh, you know, um, wanting to go back to a sense of normalcy, but there's still a lot of risk out there uh, here in Texas. People who might not be as familiar with the Texas geography, can you situate Bryan College Station for us a little bit? It's about an hour and a half outside of Houston, so that kind of south central Texas area. So this is an area that has urban, metropolitan, suburban, and rural populations all in it. Is that right? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and there's uh, it being in a college town. That's also you know very challenging with students. Um, there's definitely been a difference, but uh, with students not being here in the summer. But uh, there's been an, um, the university's trying to get more creative in, in getting the the um, university students to get vaccinated. But uh, you know now they've all kind of gone home. So how do you reach those students? It's definitely uh, living in a college town is definitely interesting. We have a lot to get to in terms of your research. You've been so active throughout the pandemic. But before we do, I'd, I'd like to just ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your strongest memories or associations of the pandemic in the last 16 months. Sure. Um, 
I'd say, you know, my strongest memories come from the uh, hospitalization of my own child uh, from COVID-19. Um, he was, uh, he's three years old. He is re fully recovered, but, uh, you know, he, uh, we all contracted COVID. Um, he had something similar, but uh, uh, similar to multi-inflammatory syndrome, but uh, not quite as severe. Um, it, the you know uh, impacts were more concentrated on his uh, intestines and kidneys as opposed to his whole body. Um, but that was you know that will always be um, you know my strongest memories of of the pandemic, and it's definitely hard to share, but um, I did want to say that, yes, when I when I think of the pandemic, that's exactly uh, where my mind goes. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry you've gone through that stress. I'm glad to hear that your son is, yes. Yes. is doing better now. Um, and every, everybody in your household had it, and now you're vaccinated? Yes. Yes, we've all we all recovered. Um, we we uh, contracted COVID back in uh, January, kind of at the height of the mm. uh, pandemic here, especially. Um, but yes, yeah, so um, my husband, myself, and our and our three year old son, uh, we mostly had mild cases, but uh, he had you know this kind of severe impact, and uh, it especially at the time, I mean, people still don't fully understand how COVID uh, impacts children or why, um, or, you know, the full uh, impact of it. But he did, he did fully recover. Um, and he received, you know, great care at Texas Children's Hospital down in Houston. Um, and, you know, we're just very, very thankful uh, that he is, you know, fully recovered and uh, was able to get, you know, such excellent medical care. Absolutely. And it's really important to hear stories like the one that you shared, too, because so many people have said this is a virus of this group or that group and they haven't. And, you know, children have been left out of that discussion too much. Um, so let's turn to so that makes it to me almost impossible to comprehend how you've gotten so much research done through all of, <laughs> all of this. But um, let's turn to that and maybe just situate us a little bit, maybe pre-COVID, your um, research, you know, you, you work on sort of the connection of vulnerable populations in disaster, and you work on a very particular population group here. Talk to us about that. Sure. So, um, you know, I would say uh, just even, you know, during the pandemic, uh, a lot of my community partners you mentioned before at TPAA at uh, the Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons, um, many of the, of the people I work with are, are mothers, are, uh, are wives, are uh, fathers. They had um, people that they loved and cared about who were incarcerated. And, and that was something that, um, you know, it was very motivating to uh, partner with them and, and try to get as much work done as possible um, to try to bring attention to those issues. Uh, but I, I first started studying um, prisons and incarcerated populations and disasters and uh, emergency management because I realized uh, that they had such a significant role, especially in emergency management. Uh, but it's not something that is really 
looked at or talked about uh, or critically analyzed. So, um, you know, and generally, unless you have someone who, uh, a loved one who is incarcerated or someone you know um, who you have a relationship with uh, or, or someone who, who works in, in the prison setting, you just may have no idea what goes on inside of those institutions. And, um, you know, often that is, that's by design and how they're constructed away from society. Uh, that's part of the punishment of, of excluding people, of removing them from their uh, community, removing them from their relationships. So, but that um, brings a lot of, 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 of vulnerability with it, of, of exposure to harm. Uh, and there's also, because that removal or being put in that type of environment is part of their punishment, that, uh, exposure to certain hazards uh, is often viewed as, as acceptable or even part of that punishment. Uh, and the longer that I've studied um, the relationship between those institutions and, and hazards and disasters, I've realized, you know, just how uh, connected our uh, understanding of criminal justice and uh, our understanding of disaster vulnerability, how strongly those things are, are connected who we criminalize, uh, how we criminalize, who we punish and, and incarcerate uh, really creates the conditions for harm, the conditions for disaster, it creates those conditions of, of vulnerability. So that's why we see uh, incarcerated people as having these you know, disproportionate impacts from things like the COVID-19 pandemic, but also from other hazards uh, like extreme temperatures or uh, hurricanes or, or really any hazard that, um, you know, occurs and impacts institutions. This is such an under-researched area, and I wonder why you think that is. is. Has there been some stigma to doing this kind of work? Has the funding just not been there? Uh, I, I'm, maybe other reasons. I'm sure you probably have some good theories about this, but it's it's when we've talked about mm -hmm. vulnerable populations, I have to say this is an area that I've seen pretty light coverage in terms of the research. Right. Well, that's, um, I can speak to definitely the challenges that I've personally experienced. Um, and, and like I talked about before, the fact that prisons are, uh, you know, built in areas that are difficult to access. Uh, they're difficult to observe, almost impossible to observe. Um, so you have uh, incarcerated people and are uh, designated as a vulnerable population in terms of research. And they should be because researchers in the past have grossly exploited their power um, and, and incarcerated people have experienced great harm from, from researchers. But um, the flip side of that is, is that uh, it's very, very challenging to access that environment. And often that is, um, you know, uh, the reasons behind that are cited as security concerns or um, you kind of get a various kind of runaround, but it's it's very difficult for researchers specifically to access the prison environment. So um, in my own experience, uh, I have tried to find different ways of, of um, getting data from uh from prisons and that that has led to looking at these secondary sources like planning documents or um, to me the most important is, is uh, interviewing people who have direct connections to uh, prisons or, or formerly incarcerated people and um, one of to me one of the, the bigger challenges also is that prisons have 
uh, or prison agencies, they have enormous power over the kinds of research that happens in those institutions and what um, what happens with that research. So you may have to sign over, uh, you know, um, control over your data or, or the kinds of things that you would do with it in terms of publishing as part of an agreement to be able to um, do research in the prison setting. And uh, when it comes to disasters, that's particularly risky because um, there's many, many protections around what is security. And so, um, you know, the disaster situation, a lot of those things are uh, withheld from, from the public or withheld from other you know, researchers because they're deemed as uh, important for institutional security. So it's very challenging just to do research um, on incarcerated populations or on um, people who work in prisons. There's a real culture of silence around you know, what happens inside of institutions. And uh, that has definitely, specifically in disasters, um, prison agencies or, um, you know, leadership of over institutions have at least acknowledged that this is a, a significant problem in disasters. Um, it's, there's, it's been described as there is this um, circle the wagons mentality of during a disaster or an emergency uh, when things uh, go badly or uh, people are um, experiencing harm, the, um, you know, institution wants to protect itself, so uh, they will, you know, shut down communication or, or uh, you know, not uh, do what, to do what they can to kind of obscure what the uh, real situation is. So they become very, um, you know, tight-lipped about what's going on in those institutions. So I think that definitely has um, an enormous uh, just logistical uh, challenges to doing that kind of research that I, that those are things that I have definitely, um, experienced as a researcher. Just in the, in the article I was reading about the situation in Nevada, you could tell a bit of that too, that the, um, prison officials, first of all, they have their own, they have their own world, they have their own bureaucracy, they have their own requirements, but they have their, uh, sort of own code of silence to a certain degree. And so even a journalist trying to get answers that they might go to a public information officer right. uh, or a county official or a state official and a number of different agencies to talk about emergency management. When it comes to prisons, it's kind of its own world, or at least that comes that's what came through in that in that particular article. You're describing mm -hmm. something similar. This is for the emergency management research wonks out there though. Does that mean that emergency management in any given for any given prison or any given county is handled separately from emergency management for the population more generally. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is uh, they are um, treated as entities of the state. So the uh, Department of Corrections uh, or in Texas the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, whatever the state prison agency is, uh, they are generally um, the phrase I've used. Uh, or heard from other local emergency managers is, you know, they handle their own, they take care of their own, um, except when it comes to the community needing something from the prison. So they have their own, you know, contracts, their own ways of um, getting resources into the prison that um, they may take, you know, they may rely on local resources, but usually it's these larger contracts um, with larger vendors uh, for the state. Um, 
But when the local community, uh, they may need something from the prison institution, and that could be uh, a variety of things. Uh, they could, um, examples that I've heard from local emergency managers is if they, uh, primarily it's labor, which I know we're going to talk about uh, later on, but that that's primarily it, But or the use of um institutional grounds. They may open up institutional grounds to evacuees because um, that is a uh, secure area. There's security on grounds and uh, they may want to house uh, emergency workers in um, a, a unit because um, some units are, are built, uh, you know, they are sturdy uh, institutions and they may uh, be uh, a, a good place to house local uh, emergency responders if, if um, uh, not all the time, often prisons are very hazardous institutions because the local hazards maybe were not thought of when you were trying to find a large tract of land that was going to be cheap. But um, theoretically, there have been some times when those institutions are useful or using um, institutional laundry, just the resource of the institution where you have laundry machines for thousands of people, kitchens that can feed so many people. Um, those are resources that maybe the community uh, may look to the prison to try to um, get some of those resources. But it's definitely not an equal, uh, equal relationship. They're going to um, do what they can to keep things uh, within their own uh, agency, for sure. There's a, I guess, a related, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, a sort of related issue is just the way that um, prisons are, are separate. Mm -hmm. And even though people may drive by them on a regular basis in states like Texas, um, right sort of socially and culturally somehow they're conceptualized for, for many people as, as separate. And you've touched on that, even this idea that whatever happens to people who are imprisoned during a disaster, that that's somehow part of the punishment or that's somehow just not something that average people should worry mm -hmm. about it. And I just sort of would share that over disaster history, one of the common themes that appears in, in even going back to the 19th century in sort of writing about disaster is there's almost always this moment in which they talk about prisoners somehow getting loose in the middle of a disaster. This is like a yes. long standing kind of like cultural trope that's out there. And it yes. sounds, I mean, it sounds like you're grappling with this in your work. Yes, there's definitely um, this idea of incarcerated people as um, being less than human, of being violent, uh, out of control, um, non-humans almost, uh, that, that will not behave in this kind of understood, uh, uh, am, not amical, the word, I, I'm, I can't remember the word, but there's this, um, the helping one another. They, they're not thinking they're going to participate in that. But um, the opposite is actually true. Uh, the uh, the uh, what we do know about what happens in, in prisons and in disasters is that um, incarcerated people uh, they they don't panic they don't um, just like we we have that trope here if people are, people are going to you know loot or um, you know that's one of the big disaster myths that people are going to behave in these really um, harmful ways and not be altruistic 
altruistic is the word I was thinking of, but there are many, 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 many examples of incarcerated people being altruistic in disasters. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, in the um, uh, after Hurricane Irma, there was the um, one of the, the British Isles, there was a prison that had been almost totally destroyed by Hurricane Irma. And um, the uh, prison agency or the, the government um, said this was a, a high security area. They were going to send in the full force of the military to you know, recapture these, these uh, high security, violent uh, prisoners. Uh, there were rumors that the um, they had, you know, broken out of the institution and they were going out and harming people. And actually, when a, when a journalist, a local journalist gave their story of actually being on the ground, they said the exact opposite was true, that the prison had almost been destroyed and that um, someone had had purposefully opened the gate and let them out because they were dying. They were they were they were they needed water. They needed food. And what they did was they went out into the community and they were helping people. Um, uh, they were helping people pull things out of their houses. Uh, they were contributing to the you know relief efforts. They were um, you know really really helping people. And uh, the you know violence really had been um, it had been just rumors. Uh, but the the exact opposite had been true. But. Uh, governments will sometimes launch, really latch onto this idea of um, of prisoners, of incarcerated people, um, of this violent image, and they'll come in and they will, you know, exercise this kind of control, and they'll bring a prison back under control after specifically a disaster. And that kind of comes out as, oh, look, the government is doing what they're supposed to be doing. They look very competent, but. Um, no, I found I have found many, many, many examples of that uh, just not being uh, factual. And then that that trope of of incarcerated people as being um, these violent um, uh, people, it's used um, to uh, bypass the need for humanitarian response to prisons. So they will say, you know, these they will, um, you know, maybe in the media frame the incarcerated people as violent. Uh, and then that that means that their needs do not have to be uh, there's less attention on the fact that they're you know not getting water they're not getting medical care uh, and that um, you know they're trying to escape when yes they they may be trying to escape they may be trying to escape a very very dangerous life threatening situation just like anyone would especially when the institution's damaged we saw that after um, Hurricane Katrina, when the Orleans Parish prison was flooded and people were trapped in, in chest high water in their cells uh, with contaminated water uh, and people who were trying to get out of the prison were shot at with rubber bullets and, and um, you know, chemical gases were shot at them to uh, prevent them from getting out, even though, you know, they were in a very, very life threatening situation. But that that kind of trope of this uh, unfeeling uh, criminal, this uh, this person who who you know will harm you. It's 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 something that is. It's definitely a tool uh, that has been used to um, you know deny access of resources to a vulnerable population, and it's also something that has been demonstrated to uh, to be false over time. That that there are many, many, many examples. Um, and even just looking at the work they do in communities of trying to um, 
you know, of government sending them out under conditions uh, in a disaster condition to help people um, that they know that that's, you know, not really the, the true situation. Discussing the complexities of prisons and incarcerated people in disaster with Carly Purdom today on COVID calls. And I, so let's turn to some of, thank you for uh, just giving me that a really important context as we dive into some of the more specific work that you've been doing at this time, Carly. Let's start by talking about the extreme extreme temperature issues. I know this is an issue you've been doing a lot of research on in the state of Texas, and it's incredibly poignant right now, given the um, record-shattering heat waves that's striking the United States, and those heat waves now have become um, a sort of generalized feature of life in the United States in the age of the climate crisis. What does that mean in terms of prison populations? And and how do we also tie that to the sort of pandemic that we've been living through for this last year and a half? Sure. So uh, the uh, issue of heat in prisons has always always been an issue, especially in Texas. Uh, The uh, Texas is one of 13 states in the U.S. that does not uh, provide universal air conditioning throughout its units. So what that means is that um, they have only about 20% of prisons in Texas are, are fully air conditioned. And those are a lot of, uh, you know, hosp- maybe hospital units, uh, units that have um, high vulnerable populations. Uh, and then the rest of the units, uh, about a third have no air conditioning whatsoever. And then um, close to half are partially air conditioned. But that partially air conditioned uh, most often means that the you know restrictive housing areas or the um, the uh, solitary confinement uh, areas they may be um, air conditioned. You may have a medical building that's air conditioned. You may have um, maybe uh, seventy five to one hundred uh, uh, beds or that are, uh, have access to air conditioning. So that doesn't really, that being partially air conditioned doesn't necessarily speak to a lot. Um, but the situation is, is definitely very serious here in Texas. Um, there have been dozens of, of reported and, and, um, uh, labeled deaths uh, due to heat, but there have been many, many, many more that are undocumented uh, deaths of incarcerated people that the heat was a contributing factor to. Uh, And so, yeah, Texas is one of 13 states in the U.S. Most of those states are concentrated in the South. So these states that really need air conditioning, but um, who, uh, you know, have prison systems that are notoriously brutal, uh, that, are not spending what they should uh, in terms of prison populations. When you look at the age of the units or the the number of incarcerated people, um, but they have really their their investment was in you know building those prisons to begin with. So, uh, but the the heat is definitely a, an extremely concerning issue in in prisons, and that's mostly because. Um, Prisons are going to be hotter than your average, um, you know, housing area. They're built with materials that trap heat. They're built in uh, campus style where you have uh, uh, stories on top of one another so that heat rises. It gets very, very hot in prisons. Um, and the uh, average incarcerated population is is 
highly medically vulnerable, either due to aging or due to a, a high proportion of, of physical illness or um, taking uh, medications that uh, for an illness, uh, mental illness, physical illness, that um, there are many medications that inhibit your body's ability to regulate internal temperatures. And so uh, that's why it's you know extremely concerning for specifically for incarcerated people. Um, but the role that heat plays in, in deaths is, is to me is, is the similar issue to how do we categorize deaths from disasters and that we know institutions, the way they define a death from a uh, hazard uh, or from a disaster is, is um, often in a very narrow way that does not fully capture the full impact. And that's something we definitely see uh, in prisons is that the way we understand even the number of deaths uh, that have happened due to uh, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, um, or where heat was was um, an, an obvious uh, you know cause for the person's death is is drastically undercounted and drastically understood in terms of what the true impact is. Oh, well, I wonder what the impact of that might have been last year in the hottest months. Uh, with the heat causing um, breathing, pulmonary distress, exacerbating yes. asthma and other kinds of things that it does. And then you compound that um, with COVID. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, as you say, I don't know. I don't know how we even yeah. get this kind of data. Has the state of Texas reported this data? No, um, but I can tell you the uh, there were very specific ways that the pandemic impacted uh, heat in Texas prisons. And that is because um, the way that institutions, and I'll tell you, Texas is uh, one of the states that has more clear uh, heat protocols and heat policies in place. Uh, the research that, that, that we have done, uh, I think, would clearly demonstrate those policies are not followed consistently across units or um, consistently through time. Um, but they do have these you know, very um, specific heat-related policies uh, but the way COVID-19 um, impacted units, especially in terms of limiting movements within facilities, of instituting lockdowns, there were these very specific ways. And that's because, so in, in Texas, the way that the agency mitigates the impact of heat is to each individual incarcerated person. And so what they do is they say um, each incarcerated person should have access to an unlimited amount of water ice, they should um, have unlimited access to cooled respite areas. They should have uh, unlimited, not unlimited, but they should have access to additional cool down showers when necessary. Uh, and um, those are the primary ways that uh, incarcerated people are supposed to uh, avoid heat related illness and death. So what our research and has shown us, but how do those policies, you know, actually, how do people, incarcerated people actually get those things and how frequently do they get them? Well, if you're under lockdown, which um, at one time, most, if not all units were under lockdown um, and, and continue uh, to go on lockdown for reasons besides COVID even, but, but during COVID lockdowns were one of the primary ways they tried to stop the spread of, of the virus. 
But the way that um, the agency would distribute water would be in is communally through through coolers. So each incarcerated person gets a little cup and um, you get one cup and you're supposed to be able to go to those coolers and, and get some water at any time you want. Uh, but when you're on lockdown, you cannot access those coolers. So what ended up happening is they would have an incarcerated worker who's supposed to come and bring water to each person in the cell. So that definitely um, it was a became a big barrier in just accessing water. You could not get water whenever you wanted it. You had to ask for it or someone had to um, you know, regularly bring it to you. And the same happened with uh, with ice. Um, the same happened with, uh, if not worse, with the cooled respite areas. Those were shut down when people are restricted to their cells or when you have limited movements. And no, not any person could, um, you know, request access to those areas. And those were those resources were not really being accessed consistently before the pandemic, where, um, you know, you have these small cooled areas maybe how many people could fit in there? Certainly not the entire population of the institution. Uh, but with COVID, the lockdowns meant you were locked in your cell and you could not access these resources that TDCG says, this is how we're gonna prevent illness and death. They could not access those resources. Um, the additional showers, there are not frequent showers when you're under lockdown. So really all of those ways that we think of, uh, we're going to combat this, uh, if we're going to just try to get resources to an individual, all of those things became extremely challenging under the context of uh, COVID-19. And we did get, uh, you know, my, my partnership, my research partnership uh, with the HEAT is with the Texas Prison Air Conditioning Advocates. They've been, um, doing amazing citizen science on this issue since 2018. Uh, but they shared a lot of their data with me so I could help them analyze it. Uh, and be, there were surveys that, that we got from people who were saying, you know, I'm in a gymnasium. There's no, uh, with all of the other COVID patients, there's no air conditioning and we all have COVID. How are we supposed to fight this virus? We can't breathe. Um, the, the heat is just oppressive on your body and there is, you know, an enormous amount of, of medical research that shows it's difficult for the body to, uh, to fight off a virus, to fight off an illness, to heal under those conditions. So, uh, the states that, that do not, certainly the states that do not have air conditioning, uh, should be, um, looking at what, uh, extent did the impact of heat have on the number of deaths that they had? Have I seen that be acknowledged? No. Uh, the local organizations have certainly been um, pointing to it. They've been, you know, uh, screaming at the top of their lungs for someone to pay attention to them. Um, working with lawmakers, trying to, you know, get the issue addressed, but but so far, no, I have not seen any agency acknowledge uh, in their their system that the uh, heat could have definitely um, contributed to their number of deaths.
just to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Dr. Carly Purdom today, an expert on incarcerated populations and disasters. Um, Carly, let's talk a little bit about your work about prison populations and labor. Uh, and you've been interviewed a lot about this and, and written about it. I want to give um, one quote here from a recent article you published with Michelle A. Meyer, and the title of this is Prisoner Labor Throughout the Life Cycle of Disasters. Quoting from the article, you said, we found that 30 out of the 47 states we analyzed, including California, Texas, and Florida, had explicit instructions to use prisoners for emergencies and disasters. I think that's probably surprising to most folks that it's that many states that do it. It was certainly surprising to me. I'd like to hear more about the research and then again, what that means in the context of the pandemic. Absolutely. Uh, I actually, uh, my belief is that we were able to document that many states had uh, used incarcerated workers explicitly in their plans, but I believe in every state in the U.S. that those um, contracts exist between um, the local Department of Corrections and their local government or the Department of Corrections and state agencies, uh, and if not a formal contract, then an understood belief because the way uh, the disaster policy are is that um, is that incarcerated people are a resource of the state. They are owned by the state. Uh, and that is certainly where you look at the um, the 13th Amendment, where incarcerated people do not have the right to refuse to participate in labor, to, to do work. And that applies even in the disaster context. So um, incarcerated people, there have been uh, wardens that I have talked to that for their institutions, they keep a uh, Excel spreadsheet of what are the resources that they have that they could contribute in a disaster, uh, the number of uh, construction equipment they have, uh, the number of, uh, of um, peace officers they could allow to assist, and the number of incarcerated workers that they have. So incarcerated workers are, um, when you have uh, this uh, state response, whenever there is a state of emergency declared, your state agency can, uh, your, your state prison agency can supply incarcerated people as, as workers um, to respond to the disaster and really in, in any kind of way that is seen as necessary. Uh, there are, uh, you know, they cannot intentionally or knowingly endanger the lives of incarcerated people. But if you think about the context of hazards or a disaster, it's it's impossible really to know um, the full extent of the risk that you may be putting a worker in. Um, but the difference between an incarcerated worker and a free worker is that an incarcerated worker does not have the option of saying no. They can um, really have some severe punishments for refusing to participate. Uh, they can be um, the, the good time that they've earned from previous labor that they've done, that means they could possibly uh, get out sooner. That, uh, that good time can be taken away from them. They can be uh, written up for disciplinary um, infractions that can impact the, their possibility of release. They can even you know, be placed in solitary confinement. So there, there's uh, an enormous amount of risk that uh, incarcerated people um, are exposed to uh, uh, 
through these policies. So every, I believe every state in the United, in the United States has used incarcerated workers, um, plans to use incarcerated workers for disasters and, and will continue, you know, to do so. Um, to speak a little about, you know, the pandemic, uh, when we were doing, you know, when we were doing that research and planning documents, the use of incarcerated workers in corrections industries was, um, definitely mentioned that corrections industries could be used to produce emergency items that um, corrections industries, which are often kind of a privatized, kind of a business that's owned by the state, run by the prison. Uh, they they often do a lot of farming. Uh, but there was this idea that, you know, they're the they could continue to farm and supply food for free people. Uh, but this is the first disaster that I believe every state in the U.S. has has um, has used incarcerated workers at the same time for the same disaster. But um, to the best of my knowledge, every state in the U.S. was using incarcerated workers in some form or fashion uh, to respond to the pandemic. And that uh, really began with with the corrections industries, with the um, production of personal protective equipment with the um, uh, with making of, of masks, of gowns, of, of um, face shields and uh, of hand sanitizer. And uh, they were, you know, producing items, but they were also continuing to do services for other entities that were impacted by the pandemic. For example, um, washing hospital laundry because, uh, a prison has these, you know, they, they do the laundry for thousands of people every day. Um, so uh, they often take on contracts with other institutions like hospitals. And there was this uh, enormous concern, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't know how does it spread? What's the largest risk? And um, but that was something that that many states have those contracts. Uh, and then also, you know, working in the prisons themselves. Uh, doing much of the cleaning, much of the um, the things that kept prisons running during the lockdowns, uh, bringing, for example, the, the, the port of bringing uh, water to the incarcerated people. Um, the institutions could not have run without the use of incarcerated labor uh, during the pandemic. The And much of our state agencies would not have had personal protective equipment without prisons. Much of our I suspect uh, many of our schools, our universities, our institutions would not have had uh, personal protective equipment during the pandemic if it was not for incarcerated workers. There's so much happening with this work. I mean, I don't even, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for the work. I mean, first of all, and but let me just say, I mean, we will not have an understanding of this pandemic I mean, I still operate with this idea that we will have an understanding of the pandemic. Let me put that out there. But we will not have an understanding of this pandemic unless we understand in some great detail what you were just describing, the ways that incarcerated people supplied labor within carceral facilities, but outside of carceral facilities, as well as the manufacture of PPE at moments when the United States did not have adequate supplies of PPE. I mean, it's you're describing a situation where a pre-existing sort of situation where prisons are allowed to, and I don't know if the word exploit, I, I think that yes. seems like the right word to me, but it, to exploit labor 
Um, suddenly then it becomes a resource and you use that term resource, which is really powerful. Um, in the middle of a pandemic when we're casting around looking for ways to save lives. And so there's that. Mm -hmm. I think that just, ha we just need, I'm glad you're doing this work and I hope you have every opportunity to document this as fully as, as possible, but we're gonna need an army of Carly Purdom <laughs> researchers to do this kind of work. So, but I, there's a part of that I wanna um, you know, correct anything I just said, but also there's a part of this I wanna get to do governors, maybe I'm thinking more governors in t what tend to be more liberal states that might even have more open-minded ideas about rights of prisoners and maybe prisoner reform, do, do they, how do they talk about prison, prisoners doing labor? Because I, I wonder if that isn't seen, and I want, I, I'm trying not to be cynical about this, but I can imagine a framing where you say, when the country needed them, when the wildfire was over the hillside or the PPE had to be made, the prisoners were there. And that becomes a basis for some sort of reconsideration of the rights mm -hmm. of prisoners. And that, to me, feels like a really fraught area, although there's something really true in it, too, undeniable. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I you know, have definitely struggled with back and forth of how do you uh, that to me is what drew me in initially is is that I, I wrote this um, uh, article for um, the Natural Hazard Center years ago, maybe five, six years ago about I titled it um, Our Defenders and Disasters. And it was, you know, who do we look to to defend us in times of disasters? It's incarcerated people. Um, and, and I think that does, um, that definitely is one of the framings that is used by more progressive um, governments or politicians and looking at, uh, you know, they point to these uh, programs specifically like, like um, in wildland firefighting or, uh, you know, as um, giving out thanks and giving out praise to the incarcerated people who, you know, have had taken on risk to, um, you know, provide these services, but there will always be this, um, that the uh, institution itself, the fact that they're in prison has uh, really damaged their own individual and collective resilience in disasters. And that's something that is um, just beginning to really be um, conceptualized. Uh, I mean, there have been many organizers and many, especially in terms of environmental justice, um, uh, academics, scholars, activists, uh, people have been, you know, talking about this for a very, very, very long time. But I think in, in terms of the disaster field, I think it's just breaking into our kind of collective consciousness of that this is even something that's going on. Um, but it's definitely just the fact that we, um, the fact that that person is incarcerated, um, their own personal resilience and disasters is going to be damaged because we have removed, first we've removed them from society, from your social capital, from your relationships that we know are vital for recovery. The institutions themselves are physically hazardous, like we've seen with this COVID pandemic. Uh, that was something extremely um, troubling that I saw, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, when we knew this was a very uh, infectious uh, viral um, 
pandemic, but there were uh, videos on social media being posted by prison agencies of their incarcerated workers in the factories saying, we're on the front line, um, incarcerated people are giving back, and um, they weren't socially distant, and they weren't always wearing PPE themselves. So just the fact that they were in this environment to give that labor meant they were more vulnerable to the impact of the disaster. Uh, and then, you know, when we look out, when they do leave, um, the fact that they contributed that labor has not translated into any meaningful policy in terms of, um, you know, getting uh, their previous records expunged or, um, you know, programs specifically that will connect. I think there's more support maybe now for getting formerly incarcerated firefighters into, um, you know, positions where they can actually use that labor once they've left prison. But for all of the other types of, of work that they do, um, it's kind of a like uh, a high five when they're in the prison for them. But really, the, the agencies themselves, they say, look what we did. Uh, look what look what we have contributed to disasters as as prison agencies. And that's very dangerous because it distracts from the harm that they did. Um, and especially talking about even just the article you read before and talking about, you know, having your loved one die of COVID in prison saying, I do not believe that they would have died if they had been in prison. And for so many, that is, that's absolutely true because prisons were, you know, from early on were hot spots. Uh, they were going to be places where there were higher than in the population, higher cases, higher deaths. Um, but it's not because of any, it, it's because they are in prison. It's because of the way that we build these physical spaces. Um, it's because of who we incarcerate and, um, and, and how we do it that can, that leads to these deaths. So we have to be very careful that, um, yes, we acknowledge that they contributed to, um, in many ways, our own safety and the safety of our own emergency responders, but the cost was very real and that that cost is not worth it to, there, there's not an equal exchange of, of um, you know, payout for, um, you know, the cost that they're having to pay to give that, that contribution back. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, there's, um, a group of, of hazard scholars, um, myself, uh, Felicia Henry, Darian Williams, Viola Jacobs, Benika Dixon, uh, and uh, two other um, community uh, organizers from the campaign to fight toxic prisons, uh, uh, Sloan Rucker and um, uh, Richard Thomas. We have an article coming out kind of discussing those those issues, uh, but they have to be they they certainly have to be discussed in terms of um, of how we how their contribution can become politicized to kind of rehabilitate the image of prisons and disasters. But um, you, we have to acknowledge that there's this full picture of what happens to them on on uh, what what their individual stories look like or what the stories look like of all incarcerated people, um, aside from the ones that maybe make make good um, make good headlines. So we'll have to get a roundtable and have all of you on to talk about that that article when you have it out. And Felicia Henry, Absolutely. I'm glad you 
name check Felicia because she's been guest hosting mm -hmm. COVID calls and just finished one a little earlier. Um, but mm -hmm. it sounds like, so the answer is not going to be a yes or a no as to how prison prisoners performing labor in disaster, how that connects then to efforts to lower sentences or to reform the criminal justice system. There's not a linearity mm -hmm. there, I guess. It's too complicated to untangle. I think it, it definitely is something to think about in terms of how we respond to people and what we think they're capable of. So when we look at, if we look at this population to come out and, and be our, um, you know, be out in our communities cleaning up debris with very little supervision, to be out in our, to be fighting wildfires, to be uh, doing this really hazardous work, um, to think, I think the, the best way to think of it is what, what could they be contributing to their communities if they weren't incarcerated? And that's a hard thing for people to wrestle with, and I understand that. But um, we have to think about the connection that incarceration has to overall resilience and that it is removing that person from their own community. If they were not incarcerated, they would be in their own community, contributing to their family's recovery, contributing to um, their own community's recovery. And we know that they're capable of, capable of that, but we have to remember the invisible side of it is there's another family, there's another community that that person's missing from because they're incarcerated. And what has, um, you know, when there are these conversations happening right now is um, does incarceration really increase uh, public safety when we look at the extremely high rates of recidivism of, of you know, does um, prison really um, follow through on promises of, of rehabilitation or looking at people you know, should they be there, you know, in the first place? Uh, those are conversations when you look at in the context of disasters, they definitely give us an understanding of um, what that role, is, what the role of incarceration is in, in vulnerability. And so it may in some small part look like it's contributing to our collective resilience, but can our resilience depend on an institution that is, you know, causing harm or causing the degradation of another person's uh, their individual resilience or their community's resilience. Well, I'm an optimist by nature and as an educator, I think you have to be. And and I do mm -hmm. have some hope that education, even, you know, as you described it, you know, unless you want to think of the world as completely, you know, there's prisoners and non-prisoners. I mean, you take mm -hmm. a second, not everybody who's in prison, in fact, the vast majority who are in, they're, they're getting out. Mm -hmm. Some of them may be yes. there on very short short sentences if they're in county facilities mm -hmm. or city jails they may be getting out very soon mm -hmm. and so you're i really i mean your provocation to think about what's when they're drawn out of their community and put in this other community what's the impact mm -hmm. of that on disaster response for their home and for their community that's a mm -hmm. really that's something we have to spend a lot of time thinking with and wrestling with, I think. I We're almost up on time, but there's another part of this I wanted to just ask you about, which is sure. that, um, you know, what do the prisoners say? I mean, mm -hmm. and this maybe it comes back to the problem of methodology and doing this kind of social science. You don't have unlimited access. Mm -hmm. I mean, we never have unlimited access to our research subjects, but this is a particularly tough population to have us sort of mm -hmm. sit down and say, how did you feel about making PPE? How did you feel right. about putting out the forest fire? 
Right. Um, I, I can say from the uh, the letters that the letters and the surveys we we get are always, um, especially about you know the heat response. They're always very um, you know thankful for the work that TPA specifically is doing. Um, they uh, there's um, you know often there's there's fear of just wanting to. Uh, you know, be alive, to to live, to be healthy, um, to or to to you know to do their work in a way that's safe. And um, there's this you know this conversation that people have around oh prisons shouldn't be you know comfortable they should be harsh. But I don't think that most people un- I don't think that most people understand what that means unless they have a loved one and who is incarcerated. And I know um, most of the work that I do is, is in work with um, people uh, is through the people who have loved ones who are incarcerated and are, who are just giving everything that they have to draw attention, you know, to this issue. And it's definitely, um, it's heartbreaking when, when things, you know, uh, when things don't work out or um, when the work that they're doing is, is overlooked or, um, you know, not taken seriously. Uh, but I can say, you know, this year was really difficult. And in Texas, um, the Texas uh, legislature where we had uh, some, we had a bill that was going to look at putting air conditioning in the prisons and it, it was voted through the house. There was such joy and excitement when that happened, but also, you know, don't hope too much because they know that the, the issue, it's so, politicized um the people in power have such a distance from the actual families and the actual incarcerated people um that you know that bill eventually it did not you know go through the senate wasn't brought to the senate um and there was just you know and, and in talking with my community partners um it's very disheartening but they just they're doing it for the ones that they love so they'll keep going they will keep going and keep going until the fight is done, and when that fight is over, they'll pick up the next one because it's someone. Um, you know, I, I try to think of you know with with my child suffering, you know, from COVID. I got to be there, right there with him the whole time. Um, my husband and I could switch off in the hospital because um, you know we were um, one parent could only one parent could be in the room, but um, there was that just you know, it's torture to be a parent, to be a wife, um, to not be able to know if your loved one is okay, to not, to have gone through time and not have heard from them, to maybe, um, to know that they're sick, but then they can't talk to you or you can't access them. You can't take care of them. You can't be with them. And it's just, um, it's extremely torturous, but there's, uh, this, um, passion and this fight for people who will, you know, fight for their communities and fight for the ones that they love and they are not going to quit and they're going to make people listen. And I think it's our job as scholars, um, as researchers to leverage any resources that we can to get to those people, to get to those, those organizations, to get to those people who are fighting on the ground, to tell their stories, to, um, and to highlight, you know, the real work that they're doing, um, uh, 
you know, TPAA, the organization I talked about, I, I just partnered with them this year at the beginning of, of, well, last year, beginning of 2020. They've been collecting hundreds of surveys from incarcerated people about the impact of heat since they started in 2018. They just did it. They said lawmakers want to know what, what's going on. They want to study. They won't do the study themselves. Fine, we'll do it. And they'll do whatever it takes and they'll find out how to do it. So uh, we should be giving them the resources, passing, you know, the mic and and doing what we can to 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 help, you know, their their efforts and in, in, uh, making their loved ones more safe, because that contributes to all of our resilience. It does. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me right back here at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow for my discussion with Emma Green, staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine. We'll be talking about some of her recent writing, particularly about political affiliation and fear of disaster and fear of COVID. And I want to thank Carly Purdom um, for taking this hour out of your incredibly busy research um, time and telling us what the work you've been doing. And we're looking forward to seeing more of it. Carly, um, great work and thanks for sharing it. Thank you, absolutely. Thank you for giving me you know, the opportunity to talk more about it. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30.